This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor. everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and occasionally I like to step back in front of the microphone. I have a different role on the network now and do an interview or two, and today I'm very pleased to say I get to talk to my friend Bruce Berglund about his terrific book, Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. Bruce, as you may know, is a longtime host on the network, so I'm very pleased just to have the chance to get to talk to him, and I'm sure that we'll have an interesting conversation about his book. Bruce, welcome. Hi, Marshall. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, certainly. Uh, So I am originally from Duluth, Minnesota, so if listeners detect a a northern accent, that's the the root of that. And... uh, I grew up an anxious child of the Cold War. Uh, I was uh, I, I knew that my hometown was a tertiary target if if the missiles ever flew, and uh, so for that reason, I had this uh, uh, kind of unusual preoccupation with the Soviet Union and the communist bloc, and that ultimately grew into an interest in all things Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, I went off to college uh, as an undergraduate and studied. Russian language and Russian literature. And while I was in college, two things happened. Uh, one was the uh, the revolutions of 1989 in Eastern Europe, which uh, I, I couldn't believe I was watching when it was happening and uh, kind of opened up this this whole new world for me that, that I could actually go to this region. Uh, and the other thing that happened is I discovered in the wake of the revolutions, uh, the writings of Václav Havel, uh, Milan Kundera, other Czech writers, and, uh, and, and that turned my attention away from Russian history and Russian culture to specifically Czech history and Czech culture. Uh, and so then when I went off to graduate school, I had originally intended, in fact, I wrote my master's thesis on an area of Russian history, uh, but then I decided that uh, I would be more interested in, in pursuing uh, studies in Czech history, and, and I should add in there that uh, uh, sometime in that mix, after I graduated from college and made my my backpacking trip around Europe, I paid a visit to uh, to Prague and loved the city and, of course, loved the beer and uh, and resolved that I should <laughs> go back and and work there. And uh, so, yes, I finished my my PhD with a dissertation on on uh, Czech history during the Second World War. I actually did research on the. Um, the exiles from Czechoslovakia who went to Britain during the, uh, during the second world war. And, uh, one thing led to another. I worked for a time at the university of Kansas in the Russian and East European Studies center there. I taught, uh, did administrative work, research work. Uh, and then I ended up at Calvin college in Michigan, where I have been for the last 14 years teaching history. Wow. That's, that's exciting. 
It's actually exciting. Not many people go from Russia to uh, the Czech lands. I think you may be the only one I've ever heard of. Really? I, I'm, I'm, am I wrong? Uh, yeah, I guess now that I think I'm of wrong. it. No, 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 <laughs> no. Now that, yeah, now that you bring it up, uh, you know, because it was pretty common, and you know this from graduate school. Um, did, so did you do a, a double field? Did you have to do a double field in Russian history and Eastern European history? I, I suppose I did, but it's been so long ago I've forgotten all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we were always, you know. I don't really remember. You know, in the, in the seminars and colloquia in, in graduate school, we were always partnered up, the the small group of East European people and the, uh, you know, in the larger group of, of Russian folks. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, a hearty lot, the Eastern European people, I'll tell you that. Yes, yes. Um, so let, let me ask you this question. Uh, it's a question I love to ask. Why, given the amount of time and effort it must have taken, did you write this book? Oh, good grief. Yes, it did take a lot of time and effort. <laughs> and uh, and at the start, I, I have to give thanks to my, to my family and to my wife who put uh, a lot of patience. Uh, I hauled them all over to Prague to spend a year there while I was doing research. And uh, um, yeah, so that was, that was a, a remarkable experience and uh, for them. And uh, they showed great patience to have their dad just kind of spending whole days at archives, right, writing some book. So, but yeah, where did the idea come from? So uh, the book is, is completely different from my dissertation. Uh, the one area of overlap is that it deals with the, the mid 20th century in, in Czech history. And um, so one thing that, that uh, kind of sparked my interest in this particular topic was noticing during my times I would spend in Prague in the Czech Republic is uh, the importance of uh, religious figures in the, the pantheon of Czech national heroes. So you can go back to Jan Hus, this uh, uh, early church reformer from um, the early modern period. You can look at Jan Amos Kamensky, who's uh, also an important uh, church reformer. Jan Zizka, who led the... Um, uh, the Hussite armies against the uh, the Habsburg Catholics, and even when you get into the 20th century, important figures like uh, the first president of Czechoslovakia, Tomáš Masaryk, and the first president of post-communist Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, uh, they would write uh, about a. Um, they had a moral vision that was rooted in a notion of, they, they didn't necessarily use the term God, uh, but in the notion of eternity. So you have this, this spiritual consciousness uh, in the statements of, of these two important political leaders. And you also see this in uh, the, other, the work of other Czech cultural figures. And yet at the same time, with all this, the, you know, these important religious reformers in, in the national pantheon, figures like Masaryk and Havel, at the same time, uh, census data and social scientific data shows that the Czechs are among the most secular nations in the world, if not the most secular. The, the rate of or the number of people who profess to be atheists among the Czechs ranges anywhere from 40% up to 60%. And mm. so I was curious about this, this contradiction that you have um, these important political and cultural figures who speak in the language of, of religion and spirituality. And you have these important figures in the nation's history who are uh, identified with Christianity and the re, uh, reform in the church. And yet in um, the modern day Czech Republic, uh, you seem to see an absence of 
um, religious practice, uh, if not religious belief. And so that was the kind of the problem or the key question that uh, I was going to dig into in my in my research. Uh, the other part of it is, and, and key to this, so, so the title of the book is Castle and Cathedral, and I'm focusing on the work in the book of the Slovene architect Joža Plečnik, uh, who came to Prague or who worked in Prague during the 1920s and 30s. He's responsible for the renovation of Prague Castle um, during the 1920s and 30s to make it a, a proper seat of, of the sitting president. And he also designed an important church in, in one of the upscale districts of, of Prague in the 19, late 1920s and 30s. And, uh, and his architecture, people who've, who've been to Central Europe, whether to Slovenia or Prague and have seen the work of Plechnik, uh, they know it. It's, it's just striking, strikingly original, and it's, it's difficult to fit within a, a period of architectural history. And uh, so what kind of was the, was the spark in my research was studying Plechnik's architect, architecture uh, and fitting it within this broader context of, of religion and culture in interwar Prague. Mm-hmm. So just by way of background, before we get right into the book, yeah. we should probably say that Czechoslovakia was a new thing in the period yeah. you're talking about. Can you yeah. talk about how that uh, impacted the thought of particularly these three people, Masaryk, Plechnik, and then Masaryk's daughter, I guess, um, Masarykova, is that her name? Yeah, Masarykova. Yeah, yeah. I should yeah. introduce her as well. So, so yeah. there, I, I focus on three characters in in the book, and uh, so so Tomasz Masaryk, who uh, was a philosophy professor. Uh, he was a something of a journalist, a cultural critic. Uh, he was elected to the Austrian parliament. Um, and then he becomes the, during the first world war, uh, he leads the effort during the war in England and in the United States, uh, to gain the Western allies support for an independent Czech and Slovak state. And then he returns triumphantly in 1918 after the war to become the first, first president of independent Czechoslovakia. Uh, Joža Plečnik, the architect, uh, as I said, is originally from Slovenia. He was educated and worked at the start of his career in Vienna. And then he comes to Prague. He comes to Prague actually before the war to teach uh, architecture uh, at um, uh basically the, the vocational school or the industrial art school in, in Prague. And then the other person uh, whom I didn't talk about before is, is Masaryk's daughter, um, his, his oldest child, uh, Alice Masarykova. Uh, uh, Masaryk was married to an American woman. And uh, Alice Masarykova was, um, she had a university education. She first went to medical school and then then earned her doctorate in history. And as she repeatedly noted, she was always the only woman in her classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the family's American connection, she goes to Chicago in the early 20th century and works at uh, settlement houses in working class neighborhoods of, right. of Chicago. She, she spends some time at Hull House with Jane Addams. Uh, she also works at the University of Chicago Settlement House on the south side. And she comes back. This experience is important. She comes back to, to Prague and she wants to do this kind of American social work, social work that's mixed with um, social scientific methods, but also a healthy dose of the Protestant social gospel, which she seed, or which she saw um, manifest in, in the work of, of her American 
um, partners in, in social work in Chicago. Uh, so these are the three figures. And when Czechoslovakia becomes independent in 1918, uh, with Tomasz Masaryk and his daughter, they have this sense of um, they're going to create something new. They have uh, great optimism for the future of the Czech nation, uh, for the future of Central Europe and Prague. Uh, but they also have the sense that um, they're at the dawning of a new era uh, in European political history and European religious history. And they see Czechoslovakia as being at the forefront of a new kind of democracy uh, where people will be motivated to serve each other in love and altruism, motivated by this, this sense of um, kind of a religious motivation. Masaryk, Masaryk had, had different mottos that he would use in, in describing uh, this, this new form of democracy in Czechoslovakia. One was the motto, Jesus, not Caesar. So, so we follow Jesus's example in building our state, not Caesar's example. Uh, and the other motto is that uh, the state must conduct its affairs. Uh, the leaders of the state must uh, govern and citizens must act out uh, within the state as he said, under the aspect of eternity. Uh, so the state's leaders and its citizens must always be attentive to uh, an eternal measure for their actions. And that would guide them. Uh, it would guide leaders in setting policy and making laws. It would guide citizens in building the democracy, building this new democracy. And his aim was that Czechoslovakia would provide a model of a moral, spiritual just democracy uh, for the new Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, this is very interesting in the sense that um, other models at the time, particularly the Wilsonian one, were either by intent um, or implication nationalistic. And maybe you could say a little bit about the various kinds of people in, well, all of these Eastern European places, but especially Czechoslovakia, Czechs and Slovaks and Germans and go ahead. Well, Masaryk's vision was not uh, uh, how to say uh, it was. It was quite nationalistic, and and his critics, uh, even critics who respected his ideas, who were appreciative of the work he was doing, recognized that in his vision for Czechoslovakia, he he really framed it in terms of a of a Czech national state, and that. Uh, um, Masaryk had something of a, uh, one of his most perceptive critics pointed out that, that he didn't always blame Masaryk. He, he, he would kind of cast the blame on, on Masaryk's uh, uh, officials and his supporters and so forth. Uh, but that Czechoslovakia had, had created this idea of an organic nation, uh, the nation as an entity, rather mm -hmm. than uh, what this critic, his name, he was a philosopher named Immanuel Rodel. Uh, what Rodel saw as the core of Masaryk's thinking is that as individuals, as individual citizens, whether Czech, Slovak, German, Hungarian, Polish, within Czechoslovakia, uh, we would be motivated individually to act morally, to act justly, uh, to serve as, as citizens. And what he saw by the late 1920s is that vision 
um, Masaryk's vision of, of, a, of a moral, spiritual democracy had been lost. And instead, what had been created was it was a Czech national state, uh, which was antagonizing other nationalities, in particular, uh, in particular the Germans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of Hans Kohn's distinction between, and this is fresh in my mind because I just did an interview with someone who wrote a terrific biography of Hans Kohn between civic nationalism, mm-hmm. which according to Hans Kohn is the Western kind, yep. and ethnic nationalism, which is the Eastern kind, and I think he even started to associate it with uh, the Israeli state, the Israeli state, and with with Jewish nationalism. Yeah. Does that fit well? Yeah, yeah. And that in that term of of a civic nationalism, or not civic nationalism, but uh, a civic notion of the state, a humanitarian notion of the state, it, it comes in the. Uh, you know, the rhetoric that Masaryk and his supporters use. And, and Masaryk, I should add, so his wife was, uh, his, his wife was from the United States. She was from Brooklyn. Uh, they met while they were studying in Germany. And, and so, <laughs> yeah, so she was there studying piano and it's a wonderful romantic story. I won't, I won't go into it, but, um, because of this connection, Masaryk always had a, an understanding and an appreciation of what was happening in the United States. Uh, he read early on, he read Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and this became something of his, uh, you know, the, the best parts of American democracy that he gained from Tocqueville is what he wanted to do uh, in, in Bohemia and then in, in Czechoslovakia after 1918. Uh, and so a lot of his, the way he describes the state and his aims for the state after 1918 are coming from his understanding of the American Republic, um, picked up from his wife, but also picked up from his reading of Tocqueville and others in particular with religion. He saw, um, in the, in the case of the United States, there needs to be some common, religious understanding that that um, guides the citizenry in morality, in their sense of service to others, uh, to work on behalf of the common good, to work on behalf of the state. He saw that as being uh, the best part of American democracy. And that's what he wanted to import to Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Tocqueville because after you said he read Democracy in America, the, the thought that occurred to me was, uh, as everyone should. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, there's never been a more brilliant book. But, you know, Tocqueville identifies, if I remember correctly, a kind of civic religion yes, in America. Yes. He says Americans don't care too much about which one. They just want you to have one. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and um, a... Scholar of, of Masaryk um, commented on this already in the early 1960s, so before the famous piece by uh, Bella about uh, civic religion uh, or civil religion, that, that Masaryk was engaged in something similar in Czechoslovakia in the 1920s and 30s, that he was trying to create a civil religion um, that would inspire citizens, that would guide uh, the state's leaders, uh, it would provide a some notion of, of God shining down over Czechoslovakia and guiding the people toward unity and toward service. Um, but yes, definitely, and you can see that, and that's part of what I'm looking at in, in the book, is how, for instance, with the work of Joža Plečnik at Prague Castle, this is part of this big project 
uh, to build a civil religion for Czechoslovakia. How did the authorized, I guess I would call them, they were authorized in other places, I don't know about Czechoslovakia, religions, uh, that is, mm-hmm. uh, your Protestants and your Catholics, your various yep. kinds of Protestants, how, how did those folks respond to Masaryk's attempts to create a civic, I guess we could call it, religion? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, so, so Masaryk had been um, raised in the Catholic Church, and he said throughout his life that when he was a young man, he was, or when he was a boy, uh, he followed his mother's example of, of devotion. He went on pilgrimages. Uh, he went regularly to Mass with his mother and so forth. And then when he was a university student, he turns away from the Catholic Church. He doesn't turn away from a, uh, a belief, or as he would call it, uh, the conviction that God existed, that one could have a relationship with God, that, that God guided an individual's actions. Yet he leaves the Catholic Church. He does join the, uh, the Reformed Church in, in Austria, uh, but, but really for the rest of his life, he doesn't participate in, in um, religious services in, in the life of any church. He identifies himself as a Protestant, but he doesn't belong to any any Protestant denomination or any Protestant <laughs> church. Uh, I was going to say, like 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 many Americans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, so he he leaves the Catholic Church, and he really becomes, uh, especially at the turn of the century, he's just a fierce, fierce, fierce critic of of the Catholic Church. And so in 1918, he becomes president and the leaders of the Catholic Church in uh, the Czech lands and in Slovakia remember that, hey, our new president was this guy who, um, you know, 15 years, 18 years ago was a heart. He was publishing these just damning criticisms of the church. Uh, He was even brought up on charges in Imperial Austria of of criticizing of condemning the church um and so they say what do we you know what are we going to do with this new president what should we expect from him and uh right away Masaryk sends a, a letter to the archbishop of olomots and says i want to have a uh separation of church and state uh basically i want to get the catholics out of education we're going to have state schools but I recognize the church's importance for uh, moral education and and so forth. And so this begins a struggle that runs throughout the 1920s into the 1930s between Masaryk wanting to have uh, a separation of church and state uh, to have the Catholic church engage only in spiritual matters uh, to have education and other matters wholly under the basically what he had seen or what uh, what he knew of uh, the case in the United States and the Catholic Church resisting this, uh, given that they had this this longstanding role in the Austrian Empire, this important role uh, in education. Uh, so so there's that side is is his struggle with the Catholic Church. Meanwhile, you do have a small population of Protestants in uh, in the Czech lands, and they see Masaryk as one of their own, uh, even though he never goes to church, even though he's not a member of church. So it's kind of like, you know, to bring an analogy, it's kind of like Ronald Reagan. Remember Ronald Reagan? Yeah. You know, that, that you have yeah. Protestants and evangelicals who thought of him as one of ours, even though the guy didn't belong yeah. to a church and didn't go to yeah. church. 
Uh, and mm. so, so they see Masaryk as someone who's going to kind of help them in rebuilding the Protestant church, which, which they see as the true church of the Czechs going back to this, this history of Jan Hus and Jan Amos Kalinsky. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, and they do, the Protestants do see a, a slight increase in membership, uh, in the early years of, uh, uh, the independent state. Uh, but by, by the early 1930s, Protestant leaders, and I talk about, uh, these figures in my books, uh, Protestant theologians, um, and, and I mentioned earlier this, this critic of Masaryk's, Emanuel Rodel, who was a, a Protestant philosopher. They recognize that, well, this isn't turning out like we expected. That, that for some reason <laughs> or another, you know, it's for some reason or another, the, the boost we were hoping for with, with Masaryk, a, a professed Protestant becoming president, president, uh, has not manifested itself in, in, uh, increased standing of the of the Protestant Church, and this was something that Masaryk himself recognized in the early 1930s. Where where and and we have the diaries of of one of his uh, one of his secretaries, and she would record. She actually lived at the the president's country estate, and she would write down uh, his conversations with people who would visit, his conversations with her, with his daughter. And in one of these conversations, he says, I, I can't understand why the Czechs haven't returned to the Protestant church. Uh, and then he goes on to blame the Protestant churches. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so this is the the relationship that he that he has. And I should add that, you know, he has this sense of a, uh, we're going to build a moral, spiritual democracy. He has this motto, Jesus, not Caesar. Uh, but in his, his own religious biography, he turned away from the Catholic church. Uh, he called himself a Protestant, but really didn't see the need to, to be part of a church. He saw himself as an example of somebody who had a, um, and he used this term synergy, this synergistic relationship with God. He was someone of firm morals, and because he didn't, he didn't need a church to become that kind of person. So why, why mm -hmm. would other people? Uh, so therefore, mm -hmm. he really saw no role for certainly not the Catholic Church, but also not the Protestant churches in the building of this this spiritual moral uh, republic in Czechoslovakia. Wow. Sounds like secular humanism. <laughs> <laughs> Without the secular part. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, his, his religious critics, even, you know, even Czech Protestants who like the guy, right. Who said, Hey, he's one of us. Once they, uh, the, the, the most perceptive of them. So I talk about a theologian in, in, in my book, a Protestant theologian named Josef Romadka, uh, who did teach for a time at, uh, Princeton seminary during the war. Uh, he was in exile, uh, in the States during the war. Um, and he wrote about Masaryk, you know, I admire the guy. He, you know, he's, he's got this great, idea for the nation, for the state, for politics. I love everything about it. But when you dig into his writings about religion, it's, it's really, it's certainly not orthodox, small O Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really not 
religion. It's, it's, you know, he talks a lot about God, but it's kind of, you know, he said the nicest thing he said is Masaryk's idea of God is, is Plato's idea of God. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's the philosopher's idea of God. Uh, When he was being less charitable, he said, it's, it's God made in man's image is, is what Masaryk is proposing. Yep. Yeah. I, I don't want to spend too much time on Masaryk, although we definitely could because he's one of the most fascinating people of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Plechnik. Yes. Uh, the, the philosopher architect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're calling that, yeah. Yeah. So, so could you tell us a little bit about, yeah, so we're talking about the Prague Castle in particular. What is that exactly? Yeah. I've never been to Prague. You haven't? No, I know. It's, it's a sad oh, thing. You know? I mean, I'm lucky if I get to go to McDonald's these days with the kids and all, so <laughs> but Prague is out. <laughs> I'll look up some pictures online. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so in in Prague, so for those those folk who've been there, they know that that uh, dominating the the old part of the city, up above the Voltava River, is is a hill called Hradčani, uh, and on top of the hill is is it doesn't look like a castle in the sense of uh, the Tower of London. Uh, it's it's a large basically a citadel. It's a complex of, of palaces, churches. Uh, the Cathedral of St. Vitus is in the center, uh, which, which dominates the whole, uh, the whole structure. There are a variety of, of large and small courtyards, uh, some small little, little lanes and, and alleyways within the castle. So it's more like a, more like a citadel. And so this, of course, had been the seat of uh, uh, the, the dukes and then the kings of Bohemia back in the, uh, back in the Middle Ages. And then uh, there were a couple of, of Habsburg uh, emperors who did have their court at, at the castle in, in Prague. Uh, but by the late 19th, early 20th century, Prague Castle has really become uh, run down. Um, it's, it's in disrepair. So when Czechoslovakia gains independence and everyone says this is going to be the seat of government, um, there were multiple ministries of the new government that were kind of claiming uh, palaces, saying these are going to be our new offices as well as the president. There was a recognition right away. This place is in terrible condition. Uh, it can't function as the, the center of government for a, for a 20th century state. Um, we can't even bring guests here. The place is in such disrepair. Uh, so, so there was this recognition of, okay, A, we need to fix the place up. Uh, B, we need to have a... Um, we, we need to restore it to its glory. It's, it's an important symbol of the authority of, of the kingdom of Bohemia. And now we want it to be a symbol of, of the authority of, of independent Czechoslovakia. So it's not just a matter of modernizing and, and getting the place functional. Uh, we also need to, to figure out how can we, um, how can we bring the place to a state where, where it, it represents the legitimacy or the authority of, of the new state. Uh, and so in the early 1920s, uh, various Czech architects kind of, of they work on, on different parts of the castle. So, for instance, one Czech architect works on, on Masaryk's offices and so forth. And right away, uh, people within the government, within, within Masaryk's office uh, and within the Guild of Czech Architects realize we need to have a single person do this project rather than having... Uh, a team of people working at cross purposes. And 
essentially everybody agrees the one person should be this teacher of architecture at the industrial arts school, Joža Plechnik, who even though he's he's Slovene, even though he's a foreigner, he had earned the respect of, of Czech architects, uh, members of uh, Masaryk's office were, were getting word that, that this guy is the best guy for the job. And so, so Masaryk kind of gives him a, 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 a test job uh, to renovate his country palace where he goes on the weekend. And Masaryk designs the interior, designs even some furniture. And Masaryk is amazed and says, hey, you get the job. You're doing the whole castle in Prague. You're doing the gardens. You're doing everything around it. The job is the job is yours. And uh, so Plechnik sets to work uh, redoing the courtyard. So for people who've been to Prague, uh, you see Plechnik's work right when you come through the, f- the front gates of the castle. Uh, there are... Um, well, one, the, the, the flat paving stones that cover the, the interior courtyards of, of the castle are Plechnik's work. Prior to that, uh, the, the courtyards had been cobblestoned. Um, but when you come into the, the, the main gates of the castle, there are these two tall wooden uh, flagpoles. Uh, they're, like, they're like tall trees, and they taper to a sharp point topped with these these bronze points at the top and there are these two enormous Czech flags. That's Plechnik's work. Uh, and then when you go inside, you see things like uh, in the interior courtyard right next to St. Vitus Cathedral, uh, there's a tall obelisk that stands in the courtyard. This is, this is something Plechnik put there. Uh, in the gardens outside the castle, Below the castle walls, there's an enormous granite bowl. Uh, it's like a like a giant bowl of of uh, you know holy water or, or for ritual cleansing or something like this. This is this is Plechnik's work. All of the gardens are Plechnik's work. And and what tourists can't see, but what really what's amazing, are the offices and apartments for the president inside the castle. Uh, and so this is the work that, that Plechnik does uh, beginning in the early 1920s um, through the mid-1930s, uh, working on the interior, the exterior of Prague Castle to make it functional as the seat of the president, but also to make it this important symbol of the power of the, the new independent republic. Mm-hmm. And uh, how does he... How does he call on his own? Um, I'm not quite sure what we're calling this. His own religiosity yeah, in doing yeah. this. Yeah. So, Plechnik is a a Catholic and and quite a devout Catholic, and he has had uh, really since the time he was a, a student. He 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 set himself apart as a student. You know, other uh, other students in Vienna in in his studio would comment on the fact that wow, this guy's kind of you know he's he's super rigid in his morals. He has kind of this this ascetic personality. He's kind of like a monk, um, and he he doesn't really fit in with the artistic and cultural trends of the time. So so from the time he was a student, Plechnik stood out. The odd thing was is that by whether by his talent or by his charisma, people who saw him as this religious guy who kind of sticks out were still drawn to him. Um, and including, strangely enough, Masaryk. 
So someone who would criticize the Catholic Church, who was no fan of the Catholic Church, he sees in Plechnik someone is, as he called him, he's a genius. And Plechnik, in, in doing his, his work on the castle and doing his designs, he drew upon an idea that architecture, whether, whether you're designing a church, whether you're designing a villa for an industrialist, as he had done in Vienna, whether you're designing a castle for a philosopher president, uh, it, all of it is a, a sacred work. Um, architecture is a sacral art, he said. Uh, he, he said to his students, it's like building a rainbow from earth to the hereafter. Mm. So he understood architecture uh, somewhat in the same way that, that Masaryk and Masaryk's daughter understood politics and understood uh, social welfare work in that the, the immediate is connected to the eternal. And what he sought to do, you know, a good example uh, is this obelisk in the center courtyard of the castle, uh, which, which suggests a timelessness. Um, and, and this was, this was Plechnik's aim in all of his architectural work, uh, the, the idea of creating an architecture that would be eternal, an architecture that you couldn't pigeonhole to a particular, um, a particular fashion, a particular trend, or a particular period. Uh, so you see in Plechnik's architecture, he draws a lot from, uh, from classical styles, classical elements, uh, but then you see things that are just completely completely original and he blends them together in a way that which would be his genius at work in in a way that that fits in a way that really that really sings and uh so yeah so this is how his religiosity comes out and it, and it's not necessarily a, a uh it fits well with his catholic religiosity but but it goes beyond that this notion of architecture as um, creating something eternal. Mm -hmm. And you said he designed a cathedral in a Tony neighborhood. What's it look like? Uh, it is, <clears throat> excuse me. When I first saw it, when I was a, when I was a, uh, you know, ignorant student in Prague, mainly to, to drink beer. Um, when I first saw Nothing wrong with that. No, no, no. When I first saw it, I thought, wow, that looks like it was something built in the late, 60s or early 70s it looks like uh right. you know some some uh modernist architect during the communist period had concocted his idea of what what a church should be like but in fact it was built in the the uh late 1920s it opened in the early 1930s and and i i always like to say that plechnik would probably be pleased with the fact that i couldn't uh, you know, that I was confused about what period, yeah, yeah, that I didn't know when to date his, his cathedral to. So, yeah, so it's called the, uh, uh, the church of, uh, the church of the sacred heart of Jesus. And it was built in the Prague neighborhood of Vinohrady, which, uh, at the time already in the 1920s and thirties was a, um, a, a Tony well-established neighborhood. So a lot of prominent writers, um, cultural figures, um, you know, people with wealth were, were living in the villas in, in Vinohrady. And, uh, and Vinohrady didn't have a church. So this was a neighborhood that had really, really sprung up since uh, the early years of the 20th century. And uh, so the church realized, okay, we need to, we need to put a, a parish, we need to put a church building into this neighborhood to serve the needs of people. And um, 
right away in, I think it was in 1918, uh, right away in 1918, the church building committee calls for a competition of designs and they get proposals from the top, top architects in, uh, in Prague um, with this idea of, okay, we're going to design a modern church for our modern capital of our modern new democracy. And Ooh. none of the designs really catch the fire of the, the building committee. They're, they're all impressive um, and they're, they're all strikingly original. Uh, but the building committee being composed of Czech architects, they recognize the one guy who can really do this is Plechnik. And they write him letters and say, hey, will you consider doing a design for this, for this new church? And uh, so throughout the 1920s, Plechnik comes up with different designs. Uh, many of them are beyond the, the resources uh, of the parish, of the church. And uh, so he has to cut elements out and so forth. And meanwhile, um, the, the church building committee has to overcome the opposition of Czech socialists, Czech um, free thinkers and other secular groups uh, who say, hey, I thought we were building a modern democracy. What are we doing putting a Catholic church in the middle of this important neighborhood in right. our capital city. And, uh, and it's really, it's, it's difficult to, to, you can't find the smoking gun documents, but we do know that, that Masaryk made an intervention to allow this project to, to move forward for the, the, uh, the church to get the necessary permissions from, uh, from the city. And, uh, the church was built, um, it was opened in the early 1930s. And, and the one thing that's striking and one thing that, that I read about, so, so many people have written about this church in terms of its design, uh, in terms of where Plechnik got his ideas for different elements of the design. Uh, what I did in my book was to look at the church records. I looked at, uh, you know, I found even that the church had a, a monthly newsletter in which you find, you know, the, the number of baptisms, the number of funerals, mm -hmm. um, the amount of, of money that was coming in and donations for the church, the amount of money that was coming in. So this is when the, the depression was beginning, donations that were coming in to support people in the neighborhood during the depression. Uh, and you also get the number of people who are taking communion. And the one thing that was striking is that in the building of this church, uh, the number of communicants shoots up, which mm. completely goes against our conventional notion of, yeah. you know, 20th century Czech religious history, especially in, in Prague, the modern capital of this, this modern state. Uh, that that you have a nation that's largely secular that's turning away from religion, and in the 1930s, you know, partly because of this new church, you know, perhaps partly because of the the, the troubles of the depression, uh, people were people were drawn to church by the by the tens of thousands uh, after Plechnik's church opens. Mm, um, I don't uh, want to leave the conversation without talking about. Uh, Masarykova. Is yeah. that how you pronounce her name? Masarykova. Masarykova. Yeah, um, yeah. Masarykova. I didn't know where the uh, you know the accent is. Masarykova. And could you tell us about her, please? She made her way to Chicago. You did mention. I have to say, you mentioned the uh, the settlement movement, and I have a settlement cookbook. Seriously, <laughs> I do. I have a settlement cookbook. Yes, I've used it many times. From which settlement? From which settlement house? Then? 
I don't know. I know it's a Chicago Settlement cookbook from the 30s. That's oh, about all interesting. I can it has a red cover. That that there you go. I don't know. It's yeah. Oh, interesting. So tell us a little bit about her. Well, she was there at the same time. She was in the same settlement house as Upton Sinclair. So she was working mm. in in you know in the stockyards in the neighborhoods at the same time he was he was taking notes on the for the jungle. So so she goes back after this experience, which is uh, a formative experience for her. She wants to try to create something like this in. Uh, then Austrian Bohemia. Uh, there's there are not many options for her. She becomes a school teacher. Uh, she works at uh, girls' uh, gymnasia first in a in a town outside of uh, outside of Prague, and then in Prague itself. And uh, during the war, so her dad and her youngest sister head off to England and then the United States so that her dad can build up this, this movement for an independent Czech state. And Alice is left in Prague with her mother, who by this time is, is quite ill. Uh, so she's taking care of her mother. Uh, she's doing social welfare work. She's uh, doing volunteer work. She's teaching. Uh, and then in 1916, she's arrested uh, be- hmm. owing to her her father's work overseas. And she's sent uh, to Vienna. Uh, She spends a number of months in jail. Uh, At one point, the news even goes out uh, in the New York Times and American newspapers that she had been executed. Uh, Mm -hmm. So so it was actually quite a, a, um, how to say, uh, it, it attracted a lot of attention, her arrest and the news of her execution in the United States, given the, the family's connections uh, with with people in the U.S. Uh, but she's she's ultimately released. And uh, and during her time in prison, this is when her kind of understanding of her her future path is really formed, where, as she says uh, at one point in a letter to her mother, my life will be an active prayer. What my my food is is serving people. And immediate, she doesn't know how she will serve people. She just knows this is, this is the direction I'm going to go. And then after the war, her father becomes president and he appoints her as the director of the Czechoslovak Red Cross. So, so Czechoslovakia forms a, its own Red Cross organization. Uh, she becomes its founding director. Right away, she has to handle uh, the problems with um, disease in post-war Czechoslovakia. Um, she has to handle food distribution, the lack of food. Uh, she goes right away to Paris and to London to meet with other Red Cross organizations, to meet with Herbert Hoover, to figure out ways to bring aid into Czechoslovakia. And uh, she, she does admirable work in terms of bringing in supplies, bringing in uh, foreign doctors, bringing in foreign nurses and social workers uh, to help um, uh, to help Czechoslovakia get through this this immediate crisis in terms of healthcare and and social welfare. Um, so, as director of of the Czechoslovak Red Cross, she has an understanding, and this and this connects with her father's vision of of the moral republic that the Red Cross is going to be essential to bringing this vision into reality uh, in that she sees the Red Cross as a way for citizens to volunteer, to serve others. She says her hope is that everybody, every citizen of Czechoslovakia will become a volunteer for the Red Cross. And so she really has a sense of the Red Cross as the instrument 
of wow. her father's moral uh, altruistic democracy. And, uh, and this is a vision she holds to through the, through the 1920s and 1930s. So we're uh, not quite out of time, but I want to ask a couple of questions. Yeah. Um, and one of them is, since we've been talking about these three figures and their ideas, I wonder if you could tell us what happened to them uh, in the following period. Masaryk, what happened to him? Uh, so Masaryk, he serves, oh, I lose count. He, he, he's elected, I believe, four times by parliament as president. Uh, the last time he's, he's uh, in failing health, he had suffered a stroke. Uh, and so he's, he, after his, his last election, he steps down shortly after that uh, in, in 1935 to make way for his chosen successor, uh, Edvard Benish, who had been his, um, his foreign minister. Um, and then Masaryk passes away in, in 1937. Uh, so a year before, Mm -hmm. uh, year before the Munich agreement, um, during the war, Alice Masarykova, she ends up in the United States and she does, um, she does lectures and uh, gives speeches and so forth, and, and trying to build support for um, for the Czechoslovak cause. So, so recall that during the war, one of the big issues that uh, that Benish in leading the government in exile had to face is how do we undo the Munich Agreement? And so, this right. was uh, work that the government in exile in London did, and this was work that uh, people like Masaryk. Masarykova and her brother Jan Masaryk were doing in in both England and the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. After the war, she returns to Prague, uh, and then, of course, in 1948, when the when the communists take over, she goes back to the United States, and she uh, she has really a, a, a rough time of it after her in her second exile. In that she she kind of bounces from from place to place she she works on uh editing her father's writings writing her own memoirs and so forth she relies upon the the care and generosity of other uh of other Czech exiles uh as well as the the women she had worked with in uh the settlement houses when she was first in Chicago uh and then Plechnik uh Plechnik resigns as the architect of the castle uh, immediately after Benish uh, takes over as president, uh, he spends really the rest of his life in, in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Uh, he continues to teach at the university in Ljubljana. He does uh, projects uh, in the early 1940s until the, the, the Germans uh, take over Slovenia from the Italians. Uh, and then even after the war, uh, under the communists, he does, um, he does a, a few projects. He did a, a uh, a project for Tito, uh, and then um, by the you know by the 1950s, it's clear that that Yugoslav and Slovene uh, architecture is moving in a more socialist direction. Yet he still has he still has fans among uh, the Slovenian Guild of Architects who you know continue to his respect his work and so forth. Um, yeah, so that's uh, the direction those those three go. Mm-hmm. What happens to Masaryk et alia's vision of a moral religious republic. Yeah. What is its legacy? Yeah, yeah. Um, I had mentioned the the Protestant theologian Josef uh, Romadka, uh, who goes to Princeton during the war, and then he returns to Prague after the war. And and during the war, 
uh, Romadka's good friend, uh, this philosopher, Emmanuel Rodel, who I mentioned earlier, um, he, he dies of illness during the, during the war, Rodel does. And, and after the war, Romadka writes a biography of his friend. And in the biography, Romadka kind of vents his understanding of, of what, re- what went wrong that even though he he criticized Masaryk's theology as bad theology, he still saw um, Masaryk as having a admirable and and correct vision for the Czechoslovak state and how Czechoslovakia should uh, should build its its democracy, and he really blames the people who surrounded Masaryk that they didn't understand. Uh, the, the religious core in, in Masaryk's philosophy. So he blames um, liberal writers like Karel Chopek. Uh, he blames people like, he doesn't say this explicitly, but, but it comes across, he blames people like, uh, like Benish and others who, who didn't fully understand that, that you couldn't, you couldn't have the morality in Masaryk's philosophy without having the, the religious awareness in, in Masaryk's philosophy. And, and so that's his, that's his argument. Um, others argue that Masaryk's philosophy was moved in the direction of, you know, you brought up the term secular humanism. It moved in the direction of a humanistic uh, understanding of, of religion, that it was a religion that would be inspiring, that it would be motivating uh, because it was lib- liberated from the authority of churches, from the, the strictures of catechisms and theology, and that it was the Catholics and it was the religious Protestants who got it wrong. And in their <laughs> insistence that, that there had to be a return uh, to the church, whichever church you choose, uh, that this was the mistake and that... Um, um, Masaryk did indeed have the the noble correct vision in proposing this uh, uh, as as one person called it um, this this churchless religion. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the that's the debate. You know, it's interesting that it has come back uh, within or Masaryk's notion of this this churchless religion, or you know, really this this idea of not being religious but being spiritual. Uh, it has it has come back, and uh, sociologists, Czech sociologists who work on uh, contemporary Czech religion, they point out that you know, contrary to what the statistics show in the census data, uh, the Czechs actually are pretty religious. They don't express their religion as a belief in uh, or adherence to any particular church or institution. They don't even profess belief in in any traditional notion of God, uh, but they do demonstrate religious belief uh and that does shape their their sense of the world and uh, and you could and this is you know one of the things i play with in the book uh this goes back masaryk didn't invent it but but masaryk as president as an important cultural figure uh he plays an important part in this history in first expressing this um this religion without without church this even this religion without god did Havel ever talk about any of these things? Havel would talk about uh, being, being with a capital B, that this was, yeah. and being as eternal, as being the measure of our, our actions, as being 
uh, the guide for us. So when you mm -hmm. read, especially uh, Havel's late letters to his wife, Olga, from when he was in prison, uh, this is when he he's formulating, he's working through this understanding of the eternal being as um, as what he's looking to in, in setting his moral mm -hmm. framework. Uh, there's a, there's a, a Czech historian, uh, Czech literary historian, actually, who's, who's done an interesting spiritual biography of, uh, of Havel and points out Havel was always, when he was within the, um, within the dissident movement, he did have connections with, uh, a number of Catholic and Protestant, um, thinkers and, and philosophers and, and was influenced a bit by their ideas, but he never, and he, and he would state this explicitly. No, I, I can't. I can't state that I believe in, in God in any traditional or creedal sense. I can't turn to uh, the church in any, any traditional mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Well, there are a lot of things that we have not had a chance to touch on in this very rich book. And I'm sorry about that, but our time is almost done. So let me ask you, Bruce, our traditional final question on the New Books Network. I don't know about the New Books Network, but it's always my traditional final question. And that is, what are you working on now? Yeah, so so this book is about architecture. I talk about art in there, um, philosophy, theology, literature. I talk about poetry, Um so I like to say that that in this book, this last book, I dealt with the the sublime heights of of human thought and culture. And for the next book, I'm moving in another direction, and and I'm writing about the history of ice hockey, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> which is not sublime. I have a lot of experience with according, it. You know, according to some sublime. people, it is Sorry. quite sublime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, right, all right, fine, okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah. They've obviously so, never watched a hockey game. <laughs> so, so I'm I'm actually taken off in in January. I'm going to go to Korea to watch the uh, to watch the Winter Olympics, and but also to uh, do some research on on hockey in Korea and East Asia, and then uh, Korean next, play hockey. Am I going to play hockey? Are Koreans play hockey? Koreans? Oh, do? Koreans! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, Koreans, God. because they're hosting the games, they have uh, oh, the men's and God. women's teams have Amazing. have automatic bids. Yeah, yeah. All so, right, okay. uh, right, okay. uh, and then and then I'm going back to Prague to do research because, of course, the Czechs play hockey. We know that. Oh, yeah. And uh, oh, yeah. and then in the yeah. summer, I'll be up in Canada because, of course, you can't write the history of hockey without uh, without going oh, to Canada. Right yeah, that's so. Yeah, so, for, so it's the global history yeah. of hockey. Global history of hockey. Well, it sounds very fascinating. I know that um, for those of us in the Northeast here, my son plays hockey and I uh, take him everywhere to play it. And uh, it really is the kind of thing that takes over your life. But we always look upon the uh, Canadians with a certain amount of envy because they kind of have it figured out. Figured out, figured out in what sense? Figured out the sense of they have a, well, they, well, they know how to produce good players out of a yeah. small population. They really do. Yes. It's pretty yeah. astounding when you think about it. I mean, there are not very many Canadians. Sorry, Canadians. And it's a big place, but it's not, you know, it's not the United States. But well, uh, a, a big part of my – Every single person who can play hockey. Yeah. <laughs> and a, they put them on teams. And, a big, uh, a big part of my book yeah. is to figure out why, why – Youth hockey has taken over your life. That's yeah, that's well, I'll that's tell you what, it really has. I never played hockey. I grew up in Kansas. I didn't I can't even skate, but I tell you what, I spend many hours every week uh participating in hockey. Mm -hmm. It's a whole deal. It's a thing in my yep. life. So yep. I think you're gonna have you have a what they call in publishing a huge natural uh, constituency for this book, a natural audience. 
I hope People so. like me. <laughs> well, Bruce, it's been great to talk to you. Um, let me tell everybody we've been talking to Bruce Berglund about his terrific book, Castle and Cathedral in Modern Prague, Longing for the Sacred in a Skeptical Age. Bruce, thanks for being on. Thank you, Marshall, for having me. Absolutely. And let me tell everyone who listens to this podcast that we really appreciate your patronage, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks very much for listening.